thing in that last song. If you simply look at it, if you want to get out your songbook a minute and turn to page 262, and just note in just a casual way, this is a song that has been sung for a multitude of years of how we use theory of language on a regular basis. Look at the first answer there. In the land of fadeless day lies the city four square. Now, in that statement, are we talking about a literal land? Are we talking about a literal city? A four square city? A fadeless day? Well, we've already said in the song that there's no need for sunshine, right? But yet it's going to be a fadeless day. And then God shall wipe away all tears. Is God going to literally wipe tears? Does the Spirit have any tears? All the streets with gold are laid. Are the streets going to literally be laid with gold? There's life's crystal river flows. We, we know that's not literal. And then for the lamb is all the light. Is there going to be a literal lamb for a light? In other words, everything about that song, that's about a totally, completely figurative song. All right, now, why do we do that? Why does this all write a song like this? that is so highly figurative. What's he talking about? Yeah. Talking about heaven. Okay, has anybody here ever seen heaven? Can you visualize in your mind a spirit? Can you visualize the heaven? You can't. You haven't been there. You cannot visualize a spirit. And so you know that it's, it, has, it contains certain truths. There's eternal abode with God, a situation far superior, no death, no suffering, no sorrow, no sickness, no heartache, no all the things that are associated with sin. And on the other hand, there's everything that we associate with something that's good here. So we know all of that. But we, we're, we're in a physical body. We live in a physical world. And so what do we do? We take things, and really we borrow the imagery from the Bible. We take things out of our environment that we can touch and see and that we have experienced, uh, positive and negative, and we use these as symbols to convey a spiritual truth that we don't fully comprehend because we haven't been into that realm yet. And we use that in a way, in fact, uh, uh, how much more all through the New Testament? The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, let me ask you this as you're sitting there. What if there walked into our audience tonight, uh, before we sung that song, someone who had never read the Bible, who's not familiar with the Bible, and is not a Christian, obviously. And here we are, he's, he's coming out of curiosity to learn something about Christianity. And he walks into our service because the sign out there said, Christians meet here. I realize it's unscriptural, but anyway, it does say that. But anyway, that he walks in and, and he sees that uh, Christians meet here. And so the first thing we do, we got up and we didn't say a whole lot, did we? We talked about some sick people and, and then we started singing. 
And so he opens up the song book to 262, In the land of famous day lies a city four square. And sounds like to him that we're looking for a time which is going to be day all time, and there's going to be this nice square city, and uh, the streets of gold, and, and the sun's out all the time, and God's going to come around and wipe all tears. And, he, and then it talks about the Lamb of God. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. He's not familiar with that term. Could he really relate to what we're saying? He couldn't sing that and worship with us. Uh, he, it, mean, it would mean nothing to him. I suggest to you that this would baffle him as much as Revelation baffles a lot of people. It'd be baffling just as much. Yeah, we're not trying to confuse anybody. We're talking about truth here. And truth that can be portrayed in this way. And we can use it in saying because all of us here tonight, we understand those symbols. I don't have to explain to you that the Lamb of God is Christ. I don't have to explain to you about that city, four square and things. We, we know that in Revelation it's used in, in that sense at all. I don't have to explain all of that. And when it says God is going to wipe away tears, I don't have to get up and explain to you that, when you're, that God is not going to take a literal rag and come and wipe the tears off your face. You know, you, you deal with that concept in your mind. And by the way, God will wipe away tears. That's an idiom. It doesn't mean literally what it says, and yet it, it conveys the truth. And so we do this, and of course there's a lot of other songs the same way, aren't they? This just simply happened to be a highly figurative one. So we can see then how somebody could walk into our assembly tonight and sing that song and think, well, man, are, are those people crazy or what? Uh, what they're saying up there doesn't uh, even make sense uh, to me at all. And then all of that, after the song, we began to pray. And he couldn't see God or anybody else that we was talking to. There's a lot of things that he wasn't already at a certain level of understanding that he would not relate to in our service. By the way, that's also the reason why that the best way to reach people that are not Christian is not always by inviting them into the service. Uh, many times, I suggest to you, things take place in our service uh, when we take the Lord's Supper. Unless there's some explanation given, they wonder what you're doing, or, or it might even seem a little, uh, a little bit unusual to them that we take this little piece of cracker, that drink a little grape juice, you know, and, and, and say, a few, say a few words. And so that they, if they're not there mentally, Right, let's turn over here to Revelation and look at some material there that John is, is given a message uh, by the angel, by way of the Lord, given the message through the angel itself. And it's got a lot of things to say, and we've noted all the way through here. We're using figurative language. We're using language that does not literally mean what it says, and yet we're dealing with spiritual truths. Now, there are some great truths involved here. There is the fact that God's people is being persecuted. And it's the fact that, that God has promised deliverance for them. And they are being severely persecuted. That's a fact. It's a fact that the man who wrote this book is being persecuted. And he's been banished to the Isle of Patmos. It's also a fact that he's writing to some literal people in literal cities. 
And he's telling them about a judgment situation that's going to come on their persecutors. And in the process, we learn that, that this beast that he represents that's going to judge the persecutors of them is also going to make life miserable for the saints, God's people, for a period of time. But then that the beast himself would overcome and, and then uh, be overcome. And then from that, he pictures in a figurative way a great victory. Uh, God's people are victorious. There's a lot of singing as a result of it, that God is victorious. And then he wants to convey to them that now this message is going to go in its victorious way throughout the entire earth. God is going to reign, and the hearts of people are going to be touched by this information. And the fact that this happened is going to be a great sign of the truthfulness of the message itself. And so he's writing to John at a time, or John's writing, I should say, to the churches at a time when they are being severely persecuted, and he's wanting to convey a lot of spiritual truths to them. Now, lastly, in the 17th, 18th, and uh, 19th chapters, we looked at them in, a, in an overall way, and tonight, again, we're going to make a few comments on that, and we're going to proceed on through the rest of Revelation, looking at it in an overall way. And then when we finish this overall look, we're going to come back and dig a little more in detail with some of the specifics. But we want to get the whole picture in our mind before we get into the specifics. Now last week we noted, for example, that in this judgment it was said that God's judgment was just and, and true, that these people deserve to be judged. And we noted that this actually paralleled what we had studied in uh, the, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, that uh, they had been uh, persecuted and their persecutors deserved to be judged. And it was a right and just thing that God was going to do. After the judgment, we notice here that we now have a, uh, a great wedding banquet. And the bride now is going to be married to the Lord. And we noted that this parallel, Matthew 22, 1 through 14, where we have the Lord uh, sending his emissaries out to proclaim his will. The will is rejected. Uh, they kill the individuals that go out with the information one by one. And then we see the Lord in that parable in Matthew 22, judging that wicked city. And then after he judges the wicked city, then the message is proclaimed to everybody and many are called in, and we have this great wedding feast between the Lamb and the Bride. And so what we see in Revelation 19 parallels, in principle, exactly what we see in Matthew 22. And that is the Lord sending message out, a message out, his messengers being persecuted, even put to their death, rejecting the message, the Lord coming in judgment, burning the city, then without being opposed by those persecutors that rejected the message, sending the message out into the entire earth, and then we have this great wedding feast, and that's exactly what we see displayed here in the 19th chapter. Also, we noted throughout those verses that this force that was being judged is a force that has been guilty of taking the life of God's people, and God is taking vengeance. And so we look at chapter 18, verse 24, in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints, and of all who had been killed on the earth. And verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, rejoice saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. 
And we noted that we, again, have a parallel to something. Uh, in Matthew 23, 29 through 39, when Jesus stood outside Jerusalem and talked about all the righteous blood that had been shed from the days of Abel to Zechariah and said that he was going to require all of that generation. And then went on to say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you as a hen gathered her chicks, but you would not, and now your house is left to you desolate. And so what is said here is parallel to what the Lord said over in Matthew, the 23rd and the 24th chapter. We've noted also in studying so far that this judgment that he speaks of in Revelation was going to be one where on the one hand it came like a thief to some, but others, if they were alert, would be ready for it and would escape it. And that's we read that in 1615. And so we notice again uh, this parallels what the Lord has said. Just like in 1 Thessalonians 5, his judgment would come as a thief in the night to the unbeliever, but to the believer who believed the Lord and recognized the signs of his coming, when he looked out and saw the things began to happen that the Lord had said would happen before he got, then he would get ready for it. And then when he got right up to the point where the army began to encompass Jerusalem, well, those in that area, the Christians, would be ready to get out of the city, get out of the land, and, and flee to the mountains, just like the Lord had said. And so again, we find a parallel with something that's already been talked about earlier. Also, this city that's being destroyed is now in the 18th chapter called Babylon. Earlier, the city that was destroyed was called Sodom and Egypt. And this is in the 11th chapter. And in the 11th chapter, the writer tells us that it's not literal Sodom, and it's not literal Egypt, but it's who? Anybody remember? City where the Lord was crucified. And he even tells us that he's calling it figuratively or spiritually Sodom and Egypt. And now over here, we're not talking about literal Babylon. We've already identified the fact that the literal city of Babylon has already been destroyed. Just like Egypt had already been defeated, and Sodom had been defeated, and Gomorrah had been defeated. And so Babylon has been. But Babylon has something in common with Egypt and with Sodom. And that is, it was an ungodly city that God, in fulfillment of his own prophecies, passed judgment on. And so now it's used to be symbolic of the same persecuting force of God's people. And God is going to reign victorious over them. We've also noted in the Revelation writer so far, the interesting thing about this beast. Uh, on the one hand, the beast is, is persecuting the uh, people of God. But on the end, and we see for a period of time that the harlot actually uses the beast. But then we notice that the beast turned on the harlot, and the beast defeated the harlot. And so the beast was a foe of the Christians and was used by the harlot. But then it became a foe and defeated the harlot. And we identified the harlot there, the adulterer, as again this city that should have been married to the Lord. And the Jerusalem was the holy city, the city that belonged to the Lord. But they had committed spiritual adultery. They had left the Lord. They had taught falsehoods. They had rejected the Messiah. And so as God often does, when his people apostatize and go astray, he depicts them in terms of an adulterer or a harlot. And thus she's depicted in, in this category. And sometimes the woman, when she's used in a wholesome sense, will refer to the bride. 
the people of God. And so we've seen a, a female use two legs here. Uh, one is a harlot that was a persecutor, and then another time we've seen one in purity that actually represented uh, the people of God. So it depends on which sense that she was actually being used. Now, in the ninth chapter, another interesting thing here, look at the uh, 19th chapter, I should say, verse 1. Uh, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah. By the way, anybody want to tell you what that, what that means? Hallelujah. When we sing that song, what are the next words? Hallelujah. What are the next words we say? Praise Jehovah, praise the Lord. That's the literal meaning of the word hallelujah. You look up hallelujah in the dictionary, that is the literal meaning of the word, praise the Lord. And so, in all the revelations, hallelujah is found four times, and it's in this 19th chapter. So you have hallelujah, verse 1. And let's see, come on down to verse 3, and let's see. And again they shouted hallelujah. The smoke goes up forever and ever. Praise the Lord. And then verse 4, hallelujah. Okay, the 24 elders and the four, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God. So hallelujah. And then in verse 6, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the, war rush, the roar of rushing waters. And again, hallelujah. Uh, for our God Almighty reigns. And so four times, in other words, We've been building up to this great judgment situation, and it's been depicted. Now it's been accomplished, so far as the vision is concerned. Now keep in mind, it literally had to happen, and we're going to see it was near to happen. But so far as the vision is concerned, it had happened. And so right after the happening, four times in the 19th chapter, we have the term, Hallelujah, or Praise the Lord, about what, it, what has happened. Now, when he makes a statement, uh, let's see, I heard the sound of like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and fire belong our God, true and just for his judgments, speaks of the condemned great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Then he says, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now all that depicted, the smoke going up forever and ever, we read that in the Old Testament, for example, in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, is there literal smoke going up from Sodom and Gomorrah right now? But did you read that? What happened here? He's just simply depicting in an imagery type way that it's it. In other words, forever and ever, that is it. Uh, Jerusalem, the Judaizers, will never, never arise to a, to a position of prominence again. They will never become a persecuting force against the church. And so the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So God avenges their blood. And then he wants to make it clear after he defeats Jerusalem that it's not going to rise up again. And so the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, it's interesting too because we're almost 2,000 years down the pike. And let's look at what we have. Are the Jews anywhere on the face of this earth a persecuting force against the church? In fact, the nationalistic Jews actually depend on what they call a Christian nation for their survival, don't they? Another interesting thing, when we think of even Israel as a nation among us to 
in Russia than there are in Israel. There are at least as many, maybe more Jews, in the United States than there are in Israel. In other words, what, and of course there's Jews in other parts of the world. In other words, the Jews in Israel represent only a small portion of that scattered people all over the face of the earth. Also, in the nation of Jerusalem, or in the nation of Israel, what about Jerusalem? Do the, do the even the nationalistic Jews, do they have full control over Jerusalem right now? Remember we discussed that where their temple was, how can they build a temple by? Okay, they, if they want to fight every Muslim, they can draw breath, they'll try to build that temple by. But there's a Muslim mosque. It's interesting, to, to my mind, they are, the Muslims are among the most fanatical people on the face of the earth, and they literally believe that it's right to spread their cause by the sword. Uh, their great prophet uh, told them to go and spread it by the sword if necessary. And those people have a mosque right over where that temple belongs, and it stands there, and the Jews can't do a whole lot about it. And so they have not been. Their, their defeat was complete. The Jews, anybody know of any Jews anywhere in America going out and converting anybody? Anybody know of them anywhere in the world? Every now and then there may be some isolated individual that marries a Jew and decides to become a, makes a decision on their own to become a Jew. I know of absolutely nothing on the earth where the Jews are going out trying to evangelize and convert people to Judaism. They just simply reproduce themselves, but they're really not going out and, and doing anything of that nature. And so suffice it to say that when they were defeated, it was a final thing. They were totally defeated as a power against the people of God. And so he depicts it that way. The smoke goes up forever and ever, the entire period under consideration, and that was all of it then. Okay, now, it comes on down, and let's see, uh, we have the wedding in verse 7, and let's see, come on down to uh, verse uh, 13. He is dressed in the robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Okay, now who's identified as the Word of God? In John's other writings, who does he identify as the Word of God? Jesus. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now let's look at that. He's dressed in a robe. Now John's telling you what he saw. But in this century, is Jesus literally dressed in a robe that has been dipped in literal blood? Well, that's not so. Are the armies in heaven following him? And he's riding a white horse, and they're dressed in fine linen. Now say that because we get to some points that people want to take literal in all this imagery. You can't come along in figurative language and say, now this is literal, this is imaginary. The whole thing is imaginary. And so the Lord is not going to literally ride a white horse. And he doesn't have a literal army dressed in literal fine linen that's following him. And he hasn't been dead. 
he treads on the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. Is he going to tread on a literal wine press? On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written. Does he literally have this, or is this what John is seeing? And it stands for something. It stands for the fact that the Lord is victorious. And he has won. And he's going to continue to win. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried with a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, and horses and riders. Well, there's going to be a literal supper, and people are going to eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men of horses and and their riders and the flesh of all the people, free and slaves, small and great. Did that literally happen? Put your place there. Flip over to, let's see, Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39. Notice something here. Ezekiel 39. And yeah, let's see. Starting with verse uh, 17. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you. The great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. Notice now. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs and goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Basia. At the sacrifice I'm preparing for you, you will eat fat till you are blooded and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the sovereign Lord. I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand that I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God, and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies. They all fell with the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offenses, and I hid my face from them. Therefore, it is what the sovereign Lord says, I will now bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on him now. What's he saying over his ego? Is he saying that God is preparing a literal feast where they're going to eat the flesh of people and kings and horses and riders? Or is he saying that God's people having been punished and been a Now God is going to pass judgment on their enemies and in Israel is going to be victorious over their enemies and with this figurative language he depicts the victoriousness of Israel over their enemies. In fact, was there a Jew that would eat blood? You couldn't eat blood and not break the law of Moses. In fact, could it, he said they're going to eat fat. Could a Jew eat fat? It was against the law. The Jew didn't have to worry about cholesterol. <laughs> they burnt the fat. They didn't eat it. But they burnt the fat. Didn't eat it. They didn't eat blood. And so the very things depicted there are things that they would not literally do. Right now, 
let's get back over here. Can we see again that this figurative language used in Revelation is exactly like figurative language that the prophets used in the Old Testament? And it, it simply is the people of God have been a beaten people, but now they've been raised up and they are a victorious people, and it's depicting them in this way. So the great supper of God simply displays there God's victorious people over all their enemies. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth, verse 19, the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war on the rider and the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. It's interesting to me here that everything is figurative and we have no problem seeing it. We know that they're not literally eating the flesh of people. We know that the Lord's garments is not being literally dipped in blood. We know he isn't carrying a literal sword. We know he isn't riding a literal horse. That it's all figurative language. But then we get over here to the fiery lake of burning sulfur and what happens? It becomes literal. The fiery lake of burning sulfur is no more literal. Now, John saw fiery lake in his vision. But it is no more literal. People being cast in a fiery lake of burning sulfur is no more literal than the Lord riding a white horse or carrying a sword or dipping his garments in blood or people eating other people. It's all figurative, imaginative, type language, but what is being shown here is literal and true. God's victory over the oppressors and God's judgment. Now think about it. John sees a vision and God wants him to see the victoriousness of God's people and the judgment on the enemies. Can you think of a better way in a shorter amount of space or shorter amount of time to depict it than right here? I can't. Uh, Any more than when you read uh, uh, Isaiah, when he's talking about the destruction of Babylon and talking about the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth being shaken, the stars casting from heaven, I can't think of a better way to depict this, to depict God's total defeat of Babylon, the fact that God's involved in it, and the total darkness and gloom and bloodbath that would happen at that time. And yet he does it in very few verses. Remember we said at the very outset of Revelation that one of the things about figurative language is it allows you to do a whole lot in a very few words. And we give a lot, that's why that we use, one of the reasons that we use it. Figurative language will allow you to do a whole lot. The Lamb of God. Three words, Lamb of God. And look how much is conveyed to our mind. That whole sacrificial system, the way Jesus went to the cross, His attitude, all of that depicted in those three words, the Lamb of God. And the key to the whole thing is you and I know the disposition and the character of a lamb and then how it was used as part of that sacrificial system. And as a result of that, all that information, it can be thrown together into a figurative phrase and say so much. 
in three short words. And in the same way here, he's saying so much in, in so few words. They were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword. Well, what's the Lord going to do? Somebody's going to use this for the judgment. Is God going to take some people and throw them alive at a burning fire and then take a sword and kill the rest? Since we killed, who did it? The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rocks. The sword comes out of his mouth and kills some of them. When the New Testament speaks in terms of the Lord using his sword, and when the Old Testament speaks of the Lord in prophecy smiting the earth with his mouth, isn't it through his teaching? His word, the sword, and the spirit is the word of God. And so what has happened here, God has passed judgment on Jerusalem through Rome. And God's going to deal with the beast. And see, after Jerusalem is destroyed, their seal is all that pagan world out there. And so God is conveying through John that the, the, the harvest city has fallen. You've defeated them. You're victorious. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But I'm going to take care of the beast too. I'm going to take care of all the pagan powers. And what would happen is that Christianity will go out, not with literal swords. Christianity will go out with the word of God. And notice it speaks of the beast and the false prophet and those that worship his image. What was going on here was emperor worship. And they demanded the worship of the emperor. And the false prophets were those that were trying to compel and persuade the people that there was deity ascribed to the emperor. They ought to worship him. But now Christianity will go out. And through the knowledge of the true God, and the knowledge of Jesus and his teaching and, and all that's involved in him, what's going to happen? Well, before they're through, you're not going to have anybody in Rome that believes that there's any deity involved in the emperor of Rome. Idolatry will go by the wayside. How many people on the face of this earth right now attribute deity to their leader? You might find a few isolated individuals in some backward society. But in humanity as a whole, that's not even a concept that we deal with. Deity being attributed to the leader right at the, at the present, present time. And so Christianity, what defeated all that? It didn't defeat itself, did it? Just like Jesus said, the devil never, never turns on himself. Christianity did. When you look at the world that you're in, and you see the lack of idolatry and the, the concepts that people believe in have been so totally defeated in so many places now, the only force that has done it is Christianity. And he went out into the world with the knowledge of the true God and salvation in Jesus. And so the writer now has defeated the city. And now he's going out to show the total victory of God. And he's not talking about literally picking up people and throwing them in a sulfur fire and burning them throughout all eternity. That's not even under consideration. Uh, any more than the literal white horse or anything like that. And keep in mind in saying that, we're not saying that everybody's not going to be judged and there's not eternal life and 
But the point is, in this context, to come here and, in a figurative language, uh, a figurative setting, where God is talking about the persecuting force of Christians and showing their victory over it and his judgment of the city, and then going on to show him the victory over all the pagan forces of Rome, uh, to then hop right down into the middle of that figurative language and say, well, I know it's not a literal white horse. I know he's not literally going to ride that horse. I know it's not a literal sword he's killing people with. And I know it's not literal blood that they're dipping their garments in. And I know they're not literally eating people. But now, what it's going to be like at the judgment is we're going to have a literal, fiery, burning sulfur, and people are just going to be thrown into it. You know, if, you get, if you're lost, you, you go out there and you're burning up forever in that. Well, that's not literal either. Let's let God take care of the situation. But in order to try and get it into something we can understand, just because you and I have difficulty comprehending the final outcome of those outside the Lord, let's don't force the Bible and God into a statement that just simply is not there. In fact, that's part of the problems with people that are infidels now is that they have been sold a bill of goods in the name of Christ that sounds repugnant to them. And that simply is, is not what it's saying. The rest of them were killed with the sword, and came out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, and having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon. Are we talking about a literal dragon? That ancient serpent, literal serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Here's an interesting diet. The dragon is figurative. The serpent is figurative. The chain is figurative. The whole context is figurative. But what about the thousand years? According to those that teach the doctrine of premillennialism, all of a sudden we've got a literal thousand, all of a sudden things get literal. They bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the abyss and locked him sealed over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be set free for a short time. And I saw thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. And they had not received his mark on their foreheads, or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Who reigned with Christ? If you're going to have this literal, doesn't say Paul Cook, doesn't say anybody in America, it says those souls that were beheaded, they came to life and reigned for a thousand years with him. That's what it says. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death hath no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Okay, now let's look at this. We've seen a figurative setting. Turn over to Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9, and then Psalms 50 and verse 10. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9, and then Psalms 50. And verse 10. OK, 
Okay, let's jack the jury be around the seven nine, please. Oh therefore, let the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant, his loving kindness, to a thousand generations. For those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay. Does God keep his covenant for a thousand generations? Then he says, I'm not going to keep it anymore. Is that what he was saying there? That when God makes a covenant, just like the, the New Testament, that it was made, that it said he'd keep it for a thousand generations, and he's going to keep it for a thousand generations and not keep it anymore? All right, let's read this in Psalms 50 and verse 10. Psalms 50 and verse 10. Uh, Larry, would you read that, please? Forever beats as far as mine, cattle on thousand
because my sins are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Satan bowed. He has no control over me. He has no claim on me. Before the sacrifice of Jesus, before remission of sins in Jesus, we were all lost. And everybody that ever died before Jesus was lost. All their hope was in the Lamb that was going to come. But in the sacrifice and in the atonement of Jesus, Satan's bound. But yet, he depicts there what happens after this great defeat of the beast, the defeat of Jerusalem before that, did all of a sudden on this earth, the forces that, that fight for things that are wrong, do they just pack up and go home, or, or do they decide to hang around and fight a little bit? There's still a lot of teaching out there converted to God's will. And so all he's saying, from all that I can see, is God is victorious. Satan is bound. But he's still going to try to deceive. There's still going to be false teaching. And there will continue to be. But you don't have to worry about it. That all of the false teaching is going to be there. And people will be deceived and all. Really, he's been conquered. And everybody that we convert through the gospel, Satan has no claim on them whatsoever. But Satan is not literally tied up. Uh, again, I don't know how you tie him up. 